I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show i am afraid of the super bug Mm. it's probably the the thing to be most scared of i would think Mm. although wow this is at this point yeah yeah it's a heady competition yeah yeah (laughs) That's true. <laughs> so many, so many, so many damn books. Hi, and welcome to So Many Damn Books. My name is Christopher. My name is Drew. And today we have Jonathan Lee joining us in the damn library. How are you, Jonathan? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, uh, as you probably remember or know, uh, <laughs> you're, uh, you're a British writer who's Work has appeared in Tin House and Granta and Narrative, and this is your first novel to be published in the United States, High Dive. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is also a Tournament of Books contestant. Yes, indeed. Yeah. To start this off, we should probably do uh, the thing that we're drinking, that I'm making everybody drink. Yes, indeed. Of course. So this cocktail I am calling Chlorine, mm. uh, inspired by our book, um, and it's supposed to, I hope that it tastes better than the drink of water you get accidentally <laughs> when you're in a pool. Yes. Uh, Although I remember as a kid, like, not not being upset You weren't I drank weren't a little super, pool water. Mm. Yeah? You know? I don't know why. But then you remember your belly being really kind of swollen yeah. as a kid yeah. when you get out of the pool, and that's when you realize how much you've drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that, that yes i do remember that um so this doesn't taste anything like that i hope no uh it's uh tanqueray vodka which was a surprise when i got home i thought i'd bought in tanqueray gin but that's fine (laughs) um i didn't even know they did they did vodka so i would have made the same mistake exactly i just said can can i have that bottle of tanqueray and he said this one which I thought in the moment was like, you have only oh. one bottle. <laughs> Which was his way of telling you that no one has ever bought that <laughs> yeah, bottle was, before. Exactly. And then I put um, Earl Grey infused simple syrup, uh, lime juice, lavender bitters, and a little bit, just a teaspoon of, um, or half or an eighth of a teaspoon of blue curacao to give it that mm. nice that chlorine. That water color. Exactly. Mm. And it uh, looks exactly like that, I think. Yeah. It looks like the color of your hair if you've been in chlorine all summer. Yeah. <laughs> it tastes great. It um, tastes very um very refined, very literary. <laughs> Free of cliche. <laughs> it's really good. I'm glad, thanks. Yeah. Thank you for saying all that. Um so that's the drink. Nice. Yeah. 
uh, I guess we should talk about what'd you buy now. Yeah. What did you buy? Um, so actually coming out of our last episode uh, where we talked with Francine Prose and she mentioned um, Wally Shawn's new play that just closed uh, at the new group, I mm. went out and picked up his book of essays, which is just called Essays. Um, and they are like so delightful and so weird. He seems like a really strange guy. He, I've met him once. And it's one of the strangest encounters I've ever had. Because in my head the whole time, I was like, you're Vicini. <laughs> <laughs> and then he talks, he like has that same sort of manic energy, mm-hmm. but also is just like whip smart and like could actually be it like an evil genius. Yeah. Mm. So I'm excited to see if these essays lend any insights to his strange mind. Interesting. It's kind of refreshing these days to meet uh, an evil genius who's whip smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to talk about something you bought? Yeah, I recently, because I've been pretending to have read it for a long time, I decided to finally buy um, Maggie Nelson's Bluets. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I had a great time reading that. Mm. Um and it wasn't it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Uh, I'd I'd already read the Argonauts, but um, at times I felt like I was a bit of an outlier with the Argonauts because although there were sections that I loved, it, it kind of uh, sometimes also felt a little dry. I found myself longing for the personal stuff, and the, um, I guess I guess it took me back to university having like so many chunks of. Um, of academic texts in yeah. the margins yeah. of that book. And, and then, and also back to like, uh, I did a semester of gender studies and I was like surprised that, that all of the people quoted were like the people on the syllabus, mm-hmm. the undergraduate <laughs> British gender <laughs> studies and things. But, um, but I really enjoyed it. And then blew, it's just like blew me away. I thought it was, I thought it's a tremendous book. Have you guys read it? Yeah, yeah. we, we read yeah. it for the, the show. Stephanie Danler brought it to us mm. when she came on the show. And it, it's a, uh, it's a favorite here. Yeah, I loved that book. Yeah. Uh, Christopher? Mm, I um, I went to iLevel Magazine's uh, launch party at the Strand Bookstore. Um, and they're a new literary magazine, Uli Cohen, uh, who we had on the show. Uh, Uli Boyder Cohen. Uh, she... Uh, they've released their second issue, and they had this. Um, they had people read from things that they liked, not things that they'd written themselves. And this guy uh, read from this book, "Lessons in Art and Life," put out by um, the school, actually Academy X. And he read this Marina Abramovich uh, essay about how an artist should practice. And then the book is full of lessons, and it's broken up into lesson plans, um, and each of the artists is a tutor explaining whatever the practice is and each essay looks different it's very interesting it's a cool looking book yeah Yeah. it's very it's got a great package uh and so i bought it right then at the after the person read from the essay nice it's a shame this is a podcast because it does look really good (laughs) (laughs) well hopefully people can use their computer machine that they're listening to this on the interweb yeah right yeah and uh, look it up (laughs) 
do you want to tell our listeners what High Dive is about if they're not um, already aware? Sure. It's um, it's mainly set in 1984 uh, when uh, Margaret Thatcher and pretty much the whole of her cabinet um, were staying at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, um, a seaside resort on the south coast of England. And they're there every year, the Conservative Party... Uh, even now, uh, every year or every other year, for the Conservative Party conference. So it's a big political gathering. And in 1984, uh, the Irish Republican Army got into the hotel 26 days before they knew Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet were going to be there, and they planted a bomb in, in room 629. So the novel is kind of about the build-up to that event uh, and kind of focused on the ordinary lives of some of the people in the hotel and and the the life of um someone who i imagine was the second bomber mm. uh in the hotel at the time a young guy from belfast uh i'm curious because it, it it's really lovely there are these two strands of the novel one is um the imagined second bomber and then the other is this lovely like end of summer coming of age novel of a, a father and daughter and I'm curious about which, if either, came first for you. It was definitely the the bomber narrative came first. Uh, I think I was, I got very interested in sort of, I went down a, a rabbit hole a few years ago on Wikipedia, I think. And I was reading about the bombing. Like I'd spent some time when I was growing up um, in Brighton in that seaside resort uh, the hotel is there. You can see it. The rebuilt hotel is, is there and you can see it from every part of the beach. And I did hear at some point stories about what had happened there. And I'm not sure why it popped into my mind again. Um, it might have been the uh, 5th of July bombings that, that happened many years later in London when mm-hmm. I was living in London. But I started to kind of think about the event a bit more and thinking that I might be able to write about it. And I think it was a footnote on Wikipedia or some article or essay I wrote where it mentioned that um, there were suspicions there had been evidence given in court that there was a second bomber who'd never been found. Mm. Patrick McGee, the primary bomber, obviously served some time in, in prison afterwards and then was released with the Good Friday Agreement terms. So I think I just started kind of imagining uh, his life a little. And one of my favorite books has always been Libra by Don DeLillo. Mm -hmm. And I love the portrayal of Lee Harvey Oswald in that book. I think I started playing around with that many, many years ago and and wrote a kind of um, failed DeLillo knockoff (laughs) before then abandoning it and writing this book. There's a fun mirroring of the two narratives in a way. Like they are both, they both end up feeling like ends of innocence in Mm -hmm. a way. Like there's the one that is very clearly the lovely family end of summer. I'm going to go to college or I'm not sort of story. But there was something that uh, towards the very end of the book that you mentioned about how in the wake of that bombing, like that was the last time politically that people moved freely. Like yeah. it, it feels so baffling today 
to think about a major party conference with like pretty minimal security. Mm. It's in like a seaside resort. Everybody's just hanging out. And you look at like the conventions here every four years mm. where it's just like totally politically locked down. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because on the other side of the novel really is a, a father-daughter connection story yeah. going on. Um, Moose, who is, I sort of took him to be like the um, Ralph Fiennes character in Grand Budapest Hotel <laughs> a little bit. Um, only a little, but maybe slightly less capable than he is. Um, and then uh, and then Freya, his daughter, who's working in the hotel to as she's trying to figure out what her next move is. Um, and it really is about, and about fatherhood and, and dealing with being close to your, uh, daughter or being close to your father. And I was, I knew, I know that you've recently become a father yourself. Mm. Um, and sort of Cormac McCarthy famously wrote the road, partially thinking about his own impending, he, that he would die before his his son came of age, mm. and I'm curious if this had anything to do with a meditation on fatherhood before you became one. Yeah, potentially, I think so. I mean, it was around the time that I was starting to wonder if you know if I would be a father one day. Um, I always imagined I would have a daughter. I have a son, as it as it turns out. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's quite possible that I was thinking about that. I think I was also thinking about my own relationship with my father and him getting older. So I was looking at it from both ways. Uh, and I've always seemed to, almost everything I've written um, in 10 or 11 years of, of trying to be a writer has somehow been about the unknowability of parents or like the, the gaps in knowledge or familiarity or love or indifference or whatever it might be between um parents and their children no, not necessarily in a really dramatic way and i don't think it's a cold portrayal of like fathers and daughters in in high dive but something i seem to be interested in for some reason mm -hmm. for some reason <laughs> for some reasons <laughs> who knows why mm. when i finished reading your book um pretty much right afterwards facebook showed me this new york times um documentary it's a short it's like it's 15 minutes long and it's uh, just 67 people going up to the top of a high dive in sweden it's got cameras on each uh, all around them and it's just whether or not they'll jump they were told they were going to give be given like 30 bucks if they mm. jump and it's just them coming to the edge of this thing and I'm, uh, have you done a high dive jump i mean these people like half of them just say like ah screw it and go back down yeah have you done it yourself i haven't done it myself i don't know how to dive uh i don't really like heights i don't, i'm kind of the guy least likely to even jump into a swimming pool from the edge of that swimming pool <laughs> <laughs> so it's not something i've done i mean i've been up there mm -hmm. i've had a look around and i've decided <laughs> i'm not the right person for the job <laughs> much like a couple of the people in the book yeah um and often when I read from the book, I read the, the kind of diving scene uh, with Moose, the, the deputy manager at the hotel, who used to be a, um, a skilled diver, kind of going up to the top board with, with Freya watching underneath his daughter. Um, but that's obviously that's the only diving scene in the book. But it's, <laughs> it kind of does feel like a, 
a metaphor for some of the other things going on in the book, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. So many of the references that you layer in, and I mean, this happened uh, before either Christopher or I were born, but like references to early Discworld, to like the Smiths. I just loved how rich it felt in a way that even though the things that Freya is reading and listening to and doing and that all of these people are surrounded by feel uh, culturally different from what I was listening to and reading growing up in the 90s. Mm. I like I just got that very vivid rush of what it was like. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about how much how much you were bringing in of the things that you loved. Mm. Yeah, I was definitely bringing in some of the stuff that I loved, although, you know, I was born in 81, so mm-hmm. that Freya's cultural references are like a little different to me too, but I was definitely reading Discworld. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I looked it up online and, and found that she might have been reading Discworld too, like that was that was exciting to me. <laughs> um, and an opportunity to steal a couple of like good Terry... Pratchett jokes yeah like less highbrow <laughs> moments in the book um and then yeah and then the, the sort of um I guess the difficult thing is trying to avoid the cliches of packing the narrative with 80s references because I think often it I don't know if this is really historical fiction or not um in terms of the labels we tend to use it but it's obviously recent history and I think all all forms of historical narrative have to flirt with that danger of the writer showing off how much research they've done or how much they're interested in the cultural nuances of a particular time. Excuse me. How much they're interested in the, the uh, political <laughs> nuances, the cultural nuances of the time. But... It was really fun to slide in a few of those references yeah. from the 80s. Um, and I felt like as long as I avoided the big hair cliches, <laughs> largely, I'd be okay. Yeah. There's only uh, some passing references to hair. It's a little bit of hair. <laughs> Books! While you were uh, refreshing your drinks, we thought uh, we'd pop in and talk about the tournament. Yeah, we'll get back to Jonathan Lee in just a second. Uh, First, we went and just talk about, you know what's going on, what happened, and what's what we're excited about. Yeah. Uh, last week, nearly the end of the first round. Yes. Those of you in the future from us right now recording this, which is all of you, uh, you already know how the first round ends. Yeah. Uh, I personally am thinking Mr. Monkey will beat Sudden Death, but... I, re- I, I love both books very so- passionately, but I do think whichever one does win radically... There are two timelines branching out ahead of us and in one of them i think sudden death makes a run to the final and in the other one uh i think the knicks and homegoing are going to be the two to beat on this side of the bracket 
I you know. already know. Yeah. Those of you listening. Yeah. You y'all you out there already know. And here's the thing, you know, there's there's some surprises in store uh, next week. I mean, we're gonna see the Underground Railroad go up against all the birds in the sky. Yeah. Which that's gonna be fun. That happened, I guess, today while you're listening to this um, on Tuesday. And God, you know, I. I can only imagine the bloodbath in the comments <laughs> if uh, if all the birds in the sky wins another match <sighs> yeah. on, against against this particular book. I, d- I don't see it happening, but it'd be fun if it yeah. did. Uh, this is a thing, you know. We uh, the comments. Everybody has sort of calcified around the idea that the final is going to be the Underground Railroad versus Homegoing, and I think there's no surer way to um, Im- to for the final to be something different than for all of us in the comments who have already decided this has got to be what it's going to be. Right. Yeah, I mean, who's going to say that grief is the thing with feathers really does fall to homecoming? I mean, my uh, my guess is that it's what beats homegoing. Yeah. Having finished homegoing, I finished homegoing after we recorded our... Uh, our Saturday show. Our Saturday live show. And um, I thought it was a lovely debut novel, but I, I don't see it as the titan that everybody else seems to. I see it as the Titan. I still do. I, I was complete. It's the book that stunned me the most. I mean, the Knicks was the most fun I had reading this mm. tournament, mm-hmm. but Homegoing was the true stone cold stunner of the of of this this year yeah. for me. I don't know. I think it, the the this side of the right side of the bracket just got way more exciting for me. Mm. Yes. Well, you know, I'm still. I still think Homegoing is going to take it, and 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 the conversation around it after um it beat uh sweet lamb of heaven mm-hmm. i think also kind of points that way um yeah i but mean what else what's coming up tomorrow we have our reader judge which is always fun yes uh i i'm always excited to see what they do and they um and tim has to choose between version control and, and the mothers and we were talking about this on the live show uh you know version control is definitely the more ambitious novel mm-hmm. i think although i mean I, I think it's ambitious to cover uh, a topic like abortion the way that the mothers does sure um i was pleased last week that the commentariat was it was heated but comfortable yes like a nice roaring fire not a not a not, house fire yeah uh about the mothers yeah not like that goodreads group Woo. Uh, uh, Woo. Tom, yeah if you want to read some crazy uh discussion on the mothers i don't know why you would yeah but uh, you can go to the Goodreads Tournament of Books group. Um, and uh, and yeah, I mean, we'll see in the comments, I guess, right? Uh, do we have anything else? I don't know. Is there anything else you're excited for? Next week, we'll be able to start thinking for real about zombies, which will be fun. Yeah. everybody loves zombies. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, and, and that's going to be fun, too, because I think um, Isaac Fitzgerald gets one of those. Oh, and, yeah. And I'm really excited to he see does. how he how he he goes because he's a really interesting reader yeah he's gonna definitely like make a make some zombie references in his judgment i feel like you oh, know how can you not yeah some people don't some people some people are down like that yeah we well, prefer we prefer those who are we gotta be honest mm-hmm. that's me being a zombie nice mm-hmm. that was good that was Thanks. good you should audition for the walking dead um i already have didn't oh, get it well, well they said it was too lively <laughs> oh boy All right, back to the show. Back to Jonathan. A lot of the book of of High Dive is um, Freya, uh, the moose's daughter's sort of somewhat of her political awakening um, 
to things as as same with Dan in in some ways uh, of a political awakening and the book that you brought that you to- you had us read is this book uh, Pereira maintains or Pereira declares as my copy says mm-hmm. um, by Antonio Tabuki it's also sort of definitely about a character's political awakening um, they they're parallel in that way and uh, but Pereira's is is quite different uh, since it's he's in uh, Portugal mm. before we dive too deep into it I'm wondering if you would tell us why you brought it to us yeah I hadn't I hadn't thought about the book for quite a while and then I was recently uh, pulling together a, a piece for the nice people at Lit Hub about um, novels that concern free expression mm. uh, for obvious reasons in terms of relevance <laughs> to our time. And and this one popped into my head again and maybe had been in, in the background of my thinking at some point when I was writing High Dive. But I think it's such a special novel and I vividly remember reading it around 10 years ago. And I think it had an introduction from Mohsin Hamid. I don't know if either mm. of your editions yeah. do. And he talked about how important it was for him in writing The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which is another so-called political novel. That he I has think a new novel coming out. He does, Exit, Exit West, West. Yeah. very soon, I think. And so I started to think about this book again. Mm. And um, it was a pleasure to go back to it. I, I wish... Uh, I wish more people read it. No, I, <laughs> I just think it's a fantastic book. It, yeah, it came out in 1995 or 94. I think it was 94 and then it was translated in 95. Right. And But it's set in 1938. And I don't know. It. I actually had to look at the publication year because I. It, it's something about translated literature. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the translation, even the best translations still seem to flatten the prose in some way. Um, so I felt like this could this existed out of time. I didn't really think that it was um, written in ninety five or ninety four. You know, it seemed to have existed for a long time. Yeah, I'm. I would be really curious to to know how much of the sort of what you're describing as the flatness was was something intended in the original language just because I think one of the interesting things about this book is, is the way that it's a novel written as testimony. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed to me when I first picked it up that it was a really terrible title. Pereira, <laughs> either Pereira maintains or Pereira declares like neither of those seemed very good. Um, and then I read the first sentence, which in my edition is Pereira maintains that he met him on a summer's day or something along those lines yeah and I started to realize that this whole novel was not only about free expression was but was kind of an act of expression that we understand that even though the central character Pereira working for this Lisbon newspaper is um is trying to remain apolitical in his life that at some stage that the story is being told from a point in time when he seems to have been arrested after having a change of heart um, and he's declaring or maintaining to the authorities throughout the book. And I, I, I love the way he does that. And sometimes it's really funny too. Like he Pereira declares that he coughed before answering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the fact of it as testimony is very interesting. And Pereira himself is a, is a, 
really fascinating uh, creation. Um, he he's widowed, and um, talking to his wife's picture at the all, all at all times. It seems like um, and saying, you know, the somewhat his doctor uh, who he comes into contact with at a health spa uh, says that he's the fetishist of memories which I thought was a perfect description of who he is and how he sees himself though, is that he's there's, this is a line from near the end of the book, but where he says, I am grateful to no one and nothing, sir, except my professional ability and the memory of my wife, Hmm. which because it's ends in my wife, I was thinking of Harrison Ford. when he said that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's, he's got a very strange sort of conviction that he is apolitical and that he, Hmm. that, that there was nothing going on mm. your honor there's that weird thing of um you know there are no the the saying that there are no atheists in foxholes but i think more accurately you can't be apolitical in a um a politically charged climate mm-hmm. like eventually society and the world is gonna catch up with you mm-hmm. and it happens in this book it happens in your book and i feel like it's happening now too as i was reading this there's, you know, that way that uh, circumstances just intrude on the reading of a book. I felt so, I felt like I was seeing people who I know in Pereira in a way that I don't know that I would have six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as they sort of like reluctantly and then all at once, they're like, oh, I'm in it now. Yeah. Yeah, I do that. And I feel like things have changed among the writing and reading community that all three of us have a part of um in terms of just i don't know it seemed to me that even when high dive came out in 2015 in england people would ask me with a slight look of suspicion or distaste on their face is this a political novel (laughs) (laughs) and that phrase still carries a certain amount of baggage i think and expectation of a 600 page dry characterless polemic right (laughs) which i don't think is i don't think is an expectation that 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 a phrase like political fiction carries in places like portugal and italy necessarily is my sense of it um and perhaps it's perhaps what you're getting at is is just that it's we've been a little bit luckier until recently and therefore we don't we don't think about politics in quite the same way yeah. yeah, I I think that is it. Is is it's just um. It, it's just it. I think only recently has choosing not to um, engage itself be a political act. Yeah, I no, I was interested in that in high in writing high dive as well. Definitely, um, I was interested in the idea that by an accident of birth. Uh, someone like Dan is brought up in Belfast as one of the few remaining Catholics in a Protestant neighborhood. And he really has no choice but to be political in his thoughts, actions. It doesn't occur to him to try and withdraw from that because it's so embedded in the fabric of his family and his life and his history and what he sees every day. Whereas Freya is, is, born you know just a a few thousand miles away and she's able to um shut herself away really in this hotel this private curated space same with moose 
where every little flower is in the right place and the, the beds are all turned down every day. This sort of false curated universe in which people come to forget where they are. And that moment when someone brings a bomb into a place like that is interesting to me as, as a kind of example of history intruding in yeah. the most obvious way, I guess. Sorry, I started talking about my book again. No, <laughs> it's good. Pereira is, he is such a comic character. <laughs> I think that's part of the real joys of reading this book is you can um, always tell where his mood is by what he's ordering at cafes <laughs> because he orders, if he's if he's feeling like he deserves a treat, he's getting an omelette au finerbe yeah. and, uh, uh, and a lemonade but he's trying to also healthy up. So he's having seafood salad and mineral water. And those like those four elements change of like, will there be sugar in his lemonade? Will he be getting cheese in his omelet? Like these are things that you yeah. immediately like key in on. Yeah. And because he's such a creature of habit, you know that these small variations might be uh, representing the biggest inner changes in his weather. <laughs> exactly. <you know? laughs> yeah. crazy. Yeah. That and the way that he's still thinking about it and very conscious of like these small little things that affect only him while in the midst of the world, other people are like, are you reading the news? You're a jerk. Like, are you paying attention to what's going on? And he's like, my doctor told me I have to lose weight. So <laughs> I don't know. I've been busy. Yeah. Well, and then, I mean, it, there is also, you know, like it, Moose can't have a political leaning really because he's thinking he's just thinking about his similarly his job and how and how this affects his job and he's seeing margaret thatcher coming to the hotel as as employment advancement opportunity mm. uh where you know when you contrast that with dan who's seeing like any movement at all yeah is uh it, i think that um by having these other perspectives in high dive um, it sort of deepens the way that it's um, connecting to the political moment. Mm. I think that's I think that's right, or I'd like to think that's right. And I think both books maybe have a an old joke that's relevant to them, which is, "What's the difference between ignorance and apathy? I don't know, and I don't fucking care." <laughs> uh, and I thought of that joke a couple of times as I was writing and there were some lines in Pereira maintains or Pereira declares that made me think about them as well because I think both books are interested in this question of when when can you afford to be ignorant or when can you afford to be apathetic towards your circumstances. Mm. There was also a really good line that I, sorry to spoil things, but I, I had a line from Pereira maintains that I wanted to share with you guys, but yeah yeah share some share us a line um so in relation to that point on apathy there's a moment in the novel where i've just sketched down a, a line from it earlier today where Pereira, who kind of prides himself on rising above politics and sees himself at least at first as so different to rossi the young pretender who's so political and merges art and activism Pereira 
describes his newspaper in this way. We are non-political and independent, but we believe in the soul. That is to say, we have Roman Catholic tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> and that's obviously a description of him too. And I, when I reread that line, I didn't think about it when I read the book, but I had a question for you guys, which is all that stuff about the soul, all that stuff about his obsession with death mm-hmm. in the book and the obituary columns and wanting to be outside of time and politics in a way and uh, almost making love to the photograph of his wife. Is he a ghost of some sort? Do you Mm. think he's alive? I think he feels of himself that way because he even says very close to the beginning of the book, he says that he feels like when his wife died, he died. And And he hasn't felt alive. And a lot of what the doctor... Um, his doctor that he meets at the Thassala. The I'm seaweed not, clinic. Seaweed <laughs> clinic. <laughs> yeah, um, is is like engage with the younger generation. Um, talk to people younger than you. And, and, and basically sort of vampirically feed off their energy because mm-hmm. you are, I think you're right. I think he is sort of basically dead. And he meets all these characters who seem to be different sides of his personality or past right yeah. so there is something magical about the narrative i think yeah, and mm. it, that it all sort of culminates in a, a rebirth for him that yeah. he find it like in those the last 30 or 40 pages he's like moving around like a much younger man would he's like rushing places he's doing things he becomes a man of action where he has been so sedentary and and Tabuchi makes a point of it where he's like, took him a while to climb the stairs. He's like kind of always sweating and hot and miserable. And at the end, all of that description goes away because mm. he's just, he's got stuff he has to do. Mm. And there, and there also becomes less and less declares and maintains as, as that goes, as, as that goes on. Yes. Um, be, you know, there's, it's funny that you say the last 40 pages because, um, you know, I, I just finished, reading this very recently and it's like the last eight pages it's it's kind of insane because it's only the book is only you know 140 pages yeah. long mm. um and it and it seems like suddenly because so many things happen where very little happened in the preceding pages um at the very end it's he suddenly becomes a man of action and it's very exciting uh, i don't even really want to explain exactly why that happens because it's like the great joy of the book is seeing him jump into action yeah this ordinary nebbish dude suddenly like not only take a stand but but really really take a stand for something yeah um yeah it's he's got his he's got his spirit back yeah um i think yeah he does seem to have his spirit back and it's interesting that we even that is sort of like ghost term isn't it or yeah religious term like he's got his spirit like he's missing his spirit at the start that's a really good description of it we've talked about it a lot in passing here but the difference between maintains and declares i've found so fascinating well because the translation truly is different it actually you know there really is many times in the book where in my book it's saying prayer uh, declares and in yours it's it's this constant refrain in the book and i think there's just something um as as a reader and a writer and somebody who just thinks about words like the two words 
do mean different things. Mm. There's something where declares feels much more front footed and um, uh, almost aggressive, confident. Yeah. yeah, that did not in in reading maintains and thinking from the beginning where he's like he maintains this that does feel more defensive does feel more as though he's like this is the story i am sticking to it this is this is what happened as opposed to sort of being like no this is what happened yeah yeah i mean it's the declaration of independence not the maintenance (laughs) (laughs) it could do with some maintenance too yeah yeah no i think that's so true and i also think that maintenance (laughs) maintains i also think that Pereira maintains suggests a life let me try again i also think that Pereira maintains suggests that there's been some longevity yeah yeah to his testimony that when we join him at the beginning of the book he has already been claiming to use a, right. another synonym that th- that this is the state of affairs for quite some time which adds a different level to it yeah I think. and i think maintains is the you know the more current version and and the one that's been um proliferated more declare seems to be one that started and is no longer used i would love to know this because there must be it's such an important translation point as you as you point out yeah especially reading a book like this that does begin in a slow and patient mode Mm -hmm. um it gets to you before you realize that it's gotten to you. Yeah. So that by the end, you really are pulled along and you, you forget. I was totally caught up. Yeah. And I didn't even have that thing where you realize that you're close to the end because you're holding less of the book. (laughs) I just, I was sort of so, Oh, it's, it's done. Mm. It's over now. Yeah. Because the ending is really, it's, it's so fast compared to the rest of it. Mm. But yeah, I, I think that this is... Thank you so much for bringing Pereira Maintain slash Declares to I'm us. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's, it's an unusual book and New Directions publish so much good stuff. They do. Yeah. Constantly. My One of my best discoveries of, of 2015 was New Directions. Mm. Well, should we talk about other uh, books we like? Do you want to start? Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend an old TOB contestant. That's how I came across the book. Uh, was was the tournament? Um, Skippy dies by mm. Paul Murray. I love that book. <laughs> yeah, your eyes got big. <laughs> um, it's one of my absolute dear favorite novels ever written, and it pops up into my head all the time. Um, little things about it. Um, it's about a a boy dying at a all boys school and then goes back and and looks sort of how he died and also how his friends are dealing with his death. Mm -hmm. Um, And my edition was broken up into three little um, separate novels for the three little books. And if you can find a version like that, it's, it's really fun. They did that with uh, Paul Murray's latest novel too, the Mark and the void. I think whoever his UK publisher, uh, they did it in a paperback slipcase again with the Mark 
and the void nice yeah yeah i haven't read the new one yet but um i highly highly recommend skippy dies especially if you're um into the campus novel or boarding school novels this is a fantastic one yeah and i'm not really into those campus novels or boarding school novels so i picked it up with a certain trepidation a few years ago and the writing is just like it's so entertaining but it's so literary and it's uh isn't it it's i think he's a master of the close third person the way mm-hmm. he's able to enter the heads of all of those characters and i found something strangely refreshing about the combination of title and first few pages <laughs> yeah that, that it's there on the book skippy dies you know he goes, no, no no refunds on this book like, <laughs> like you know he dies and then I think he, he dies in the first three pages in that yeah. donut eating competition with that wonderful character, Ruprecht. Yeah. Oh, my it's gosh. Great book. I yeah. cannot. I, I, I'm going to be reading it again soon, for sure. Although I think I should probably read his new one first. Uh, anyway, <laughs> why, don't, why don't you guys talk now? Uh, would you like to go first? Sure. Okay. I, I guess another thing I read recently is Rachel Cusk's Outline. Have you Ooh. come across that book? Uh, I have that sitting on, on my... I haven't gotten to it yet, but I keep being drawn to it. It's really good. I feel sometimes a little cautious of books in which novelists are the narrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sometimes have a bit of a suspicion of that, <laughs> that it's going to be like a really pretentious wank fest as opposed to just, just a standard wank fest. <laughs> but but I, I absolutely love that book i think she's an amazing writer and talking about distance in the the prose i feel like there's an amazing cool calmness to it and something i know you had stephanie danner on the show recently something i talked to her about recently when i was doing an interview with her for the paris review website was narrators in which um narrators for whom it seems that the the backstory isn't the story we need. Hmm. I think uh, Maggie Nelson's Bluets and and things like that are, are relevant to this, and Rachel Kushner's Flamethrowers, where you find out hardly anything about the central character. And in Rachel Cusk's outline, you have this novelist who is going to teach on an island in Greece for a while, and you understand that somehow lurking in the past, uh, she has recently the recent past. Somehow, lurking in the recent past, she's become separated from her family and her husband. And that's something that's sort of well known about Rachel Cusk herself as well. And that gives this sort of power, this undertow to the narrative. And it's the best novel I've ever read about listening. It's sort of made up of these conversations she has with strangers. It starts... Um, with a with a random entrepreneur she meets before she boards the plane to Greece and then she gets talking to this awful rich guy on the plane and all of these people tell her their life stories their backstories but you never get hers hmm. and it's a beautiful novel about the act of listening I think Gosh, cool they need to um definitely get that pull quote for the paperback the best novel i've ever read about listening (laughs) i'm not sure i'm not sure she needs it (laughs) uh drew um i 
my girlfriend was out of town for a long weekend a couple weeks ago, and while she was gone, I read all of Haruki Murakami's first two novels, uh, Hear the Wind Sing and Pinball 1973, which are in a, a single, one of those books where you together. flip it and you read from the back front. Um, and he has this introduction where he's like, I'm kind of embarrassed that I've become so popular that people needed this translated into English because I don't think these are very good, but I guess you wanted it. Here you go. Uh, But there is something so charming about seeing him not quite be Haruki Murakami yet. Um, Like he, there are moments where it feels like he's trying to be Vonnegut or like he's trying to be Joan Didion and he's sort of trying on these different personas Mm -hmm. while all the while still having that, like that jazzy coolness Mm -hmm. and like the references to making spaghetti uh, they, are they there oh they the are there there's career? a page i took a, a photo of it because in one page it is everything haruki murakami oh, there's a reference. someone go record shopping there's someone goes record <laughs> shopping he makes spaghetti they talk about a girl's ear <laughs> in a single and i was like there it is this the is the rosetta stone is. and is there also like a missing cat and someone lost down a well or not there's a there is a reference to wells uh and a um a story by an uh, like some somewhat obscure sci-fi author whose name I'm forgetting, but I'll put it on the website. Mm-hmm. And his short story that's like a proto Bradbury short story about Mars and discovering that on Mars there are a bunch of wells that like are actually <laughs> time travel wells. Of course, amazing. yeah. And I was like, this is amazing. But yeah. Uh, but it also like it's just a lovely thing to read when you have a moment of solitude. Mm. Hmm. Well, that sounds really good. Well, uh, you mentioned it already, but I want to people to know again that we have a website, somanydambooks.com, where we list all of the books that we mention on every episode, as well as all of the drink recipes and fun little things. Go to somanydambooks.com. Tidbits. Tidbits. Um, photos links i don't know yeah it's all up there who knows you can even uh you can even click on the link to buy the t-shirt that tells that expresses so many damn books yeah is that what it says so many damn books yeah. it does in fact are you gonna flash oh. us it's under your shirt again yeah would have been so good for tv but for <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good that's a really good t-shirt <laughs> i like the ambiguity of the message as well so many damn books because i feel like it's perfect for a book fan to wear but also if you're donald trump and you're listening you <laughs> might want to wear that too you know so yeah so many damn pointless books <laughs> <laughs> you can be mad about it you can be in awe there's a lot of ways yeah. to, to the whole read range the, yeah read the title of our show yeah Thanks for coming on the show, Jonathan. We really love. I loved. I loved your novel, and uh, and Prayer Maintains was an awesome book to read. And yeah, yeah this so was a lot of fun. On. No, thank you for having me. It's, it's really fun to talk about books with you guys. Good. Gosh, that's all we want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll see you in a week. You used to get it in your fishnets. Now you only get it in your nightdress. Discarded all the naughty nights for niceness. Landed in a very common crisis. Everything's in order in a black hole. What if Trump just needs audiobooks? I don't want to talk about Trump ever. The best you ever had, the best you ever had is just.